0: So welcome back everybody to the Agility Transformation Podcast. I'm here with Mark Malay, who is an entrepreneur who just retired from 21 years in the Navy, and is uh, has been spending the past year developing his own business around helping veteran vet and military spouse-owned businesses become more resilient, and also a business I believe around organic waste management. So thank you so much for being here, Mark. And how about if you give an even better introduction of who you are and what you do?
1: What, Kelly? That was a great introduction. I th- <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. And uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you as well in the last few weeks. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't have too much more to add to that, although I can, I can add certainly to how I have gotten to where I am. Um, I served in the Navy for 21 and a half years, um, started my career after graduating from the Naval Academy in 1996 um, and flight school in 1998. Um, I started off by flying the, the F-14 Tomcat off carriers, made a couple deployments uh, to the usual hotspots of Iraq and Afghanistan, became a Top Gun instructor in the middle of there somewhere, um, and, uh, would take a break, uh, go to Auburn for grad school to study international relations. Oh, and then huh. Eventually, uh, after a long hard deployment in Afghanistan in 2009, mm-hmm. decide to, uh, get, to take a step away from naval aviation and go work for a Navy SEAL team, which would be a very formative experience in my life.
0: Mm. I How so
1: How Today. Um, Just to summarize, because I hope we can get more into it, Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like what naval aviation was providing in Afghanistan, and really in Iraq, was um, what we thought was very precise um, capabilities in terms of supporting the mission on the ground. But what I found was still as precise as we could make it was still not precise enough to um, truly make a, a lasting impact from 10,000 feet. And I know we'll get more into it, but um, what I wanted to do was work for a team that was more precisely focused on the threat our nation was, uh, our, the threat to our nation and the American people, which at the time, I think 2010, was Al Qaeda and its other franchises around the world, like Al Qaeda, the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, and, um, Boko Haram in, uh, you know, in, in the North Africa, and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I went to go work for, a, I got picked up to work for the SEAL team and became an operational planner and executor and liaison for them. Um, and really there um, began, I applied all of my experience and knowledge in the conventional military world to the very unconventional special operations world. And yeah. Fast forward to you know the concept of Scrum and Agile. Yeah. At that, t- I learned all of the concepts that we are now throwing around in the agility world and the Scrum Scrum world. I learned in 2010, 11, 12, and 13 when I was working for oh. Special Operations Command because we would huh. do all of these things, um, and we can get into it. But that that made that that experience so rich for me, and um, we. I was, it was an honor and a privilege to work with our nation's finest operators
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and intelligence professionals and truly leadership who worked together as a, as General McChrystal says, truly as a team of teams. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I lived through that period that he has captured so well in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, after that, it was an exhausting Three, four years needed a break. The Navy said, "What do you want to do?" <laughs> well, so you done? I said, "Hey, can I be the French naval attaché?" And they're like, "What else do you want to do?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was from uh, my parents were retiring to the Eastern Shore, and I love teaching, so um, the Naval Academy was a, a really good fit for me. So I took oh. to Annapolis, which is where I'm talking to you from today, mm-hmm. and I taught in political science. Oh. four years and also ran the naval aviation training recruiting education processes for the 4,500 midshipmen uh, students that the Naval Academy has, um, of which every year about uh, 330 of a class of 1,100 go to fly for the Marine Corps and the Navy. Um, So the Naval Academy really is the Naval Aviation Academy um, by just percentage of job fields. So it was really an honor to focus all of my background experience to, 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 to choosing and selecting and preparing the best midshipmen that we could get to follow in my footsteps and the other local aviators who were there. So I had some leadership opportunities there around the division of humanities because um, I taught in political science. So I got a chance to see how academia works oh. or does not work sometimes.
0: <laughs> but
1: yeah. Through that experience as well. So. I retired from the Navy in November of 17 and uh, launched myself into entrepreneurship. So I'll pause there and kick it back to you because I know we'll get into that whole transition for me. Um, But yeah, thanks for letting me give you a long-winded biography.
0: Thank you for giving it. There's such a depth and breadth of experience there that I'm looking forward to diving into. Uh, And so, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to explore how to help transformation be sustainable. And one reason that I was really excited to interview you is because my dumb guy person on the street impression is that the military is doing a better job at making transformation sustainable than business. And business would love to do a better job because typically we see agile transformations that sort of start with a lot of energy and maybe they even go through like one client of mine just went through two years of creating a new operating model. And I was in a meeting yesterday where some of the senior leaders were literally yelling, not at me, uh, but yelling, we're in our new operating model. We're supposed to be agile, but we're seeing the same behaviors. As before like guarding resources we don't want to share working in silos kind of the opposite what you described around General McChrystal's team of teams so maybe that's one entry point for us to dive in why did you say you were doing all the agile stuff already with the seals I'm so curious around that if what and what have you seen around making behaviors sustainable versus they just sort of fade
1: away, yeah. Wow, there's a, that's a lot to unpack. And I know, um,
0: I know. But
1: that's yeah. the crux of the challenge, that's the, that's the crux of the challenge that corporate America is facing today, right? Yeah. Is both how you, how do you crack then the, the agile, it's not just the agile nut, it's how do you weave in um, innovative best, innovative practices and make them sustainable across your 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 company, your your uh, you know your your uh, yeah your corporate family, the people, the the processes, the whole gambit of who you are. It's hard. Um, yeah. So I, you you have my wheels turning on this because I don't think there's any one thing you can point to that explains why. Um, you think, and I think, the military is it has is better at being agile and transformative and innovative than corporate world. Frankly, there are times where I think it's the exact opposite.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But the uh, you know we get, at, but I think at the at the corporate level, the Department of Defense can be very non-innovative, can be very um, it can very much lack momentum it, uh, to change. It can very much lack transformation. Um, so the, at the, however, at the operational level, which is, I think what you're talking about,
0: I'm talking about both actually. Sure. But, but yeah. it, it,
1: and I think that it, at the operational level of the military, I think relative to the corporate operational level, yes, we are very, um, agile, uh, by structure, training, culture, and ultimately execution.
0: But and, why structure isn't the military pretty rigidly hierarchical? You're smiling. You know where I'm going with this.
1: I do, but here's the yeah. big difference. Yeah. Is that how many corporations rotate their people f- from job to a different job every 24 to 36 months?
0: Good point. Interesting. So like
1: in that hierarchy of leadership, sure we have we have a pyramid of approach to leadership. Yeah. Uh, and that's a oh, that's a very simplified way of, of explaining it. Yeah, so what's different about the military is its approach to um, manpower movement. Um, we have the same hierarchical culture as any corporate entity, but everybody in that structure from the chief of naval operations and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff all the way on down to the newest um, ensign or, or seaman recruit is going to change jobs every two to three, at the most, four years. What- <laughs> Does is it allows the military to move talent around to uh, to, dis- to 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 disperse this training that everybody is provided across the fleet, which allows us to standardize our approach so much rather quickly. It also allows us to prevent uh, certain organizations from becoming from becoming stagnant or or um, or just poor performing because you're going to eventually rotate innovators and higher perform people in there. At the same time, your higher higher performers don't just all sit in one spot you rotate all them around. So the rotational approach to manpower in the military is a very innovative solution to our need to produce a standardized approach to business, to make sure that we had a, a level operating field across the organization. Um, and also Creates a rather exciting environment for people who, like us, we want to do change every few years. Mm-hmm. We want to try something harder and different, and so it, it was a. It's a way to solve all those problems. It's it, corporate America can't just adopt and put in place into their structure, but it's something they need to think about. Is how they are. Um, they're they're enabling people who want to move to different challenges but also how they want they need to prevent pockets of stagnation and pockets of innovation from from remaining in those locations in their corporate entities and they all have them the strong performing unit and the poor performing unit
0: yeah everyone knows who they are Um, and so i'm really intrigued by your comment that in 2010, working with the Navy SEALs, you were already doing Agile. And yeah. um, and I'm, I'm so interested in, in the, the behavioral change and how to help that stick. And obviously that was happening with you and the SEALs. So in what way were you doing Agile already in 2010? And what are your thoughts on like how to help teams actually adopt the behaviors versus just sort of talking about the behaviors.
1: So, I think we need to agree on what our definition of agile is here, right? Great. Let's let's ask the guy who has no agile certifications or scrum certifications to define <laughs> agility and scrum. Okay, okay. so <laughs> this is my favorite part of this. Okay. So, as I understand the big heads explain what <laughs> is agile. This is a head nod. This is a nod to Nigel Thurlow, right? And okay, to yeah. You know, the act of being agile is is being able to rapidly iterate your production processes mm-hmm. to inco- and to incorporate a feedback loop
0: mm-hmm.
1: in order to produce what the customer wants
0: mm-hmm.
1: to achieve higher higher uh, higher rate of success. Okay. So to me, that's a that's a quick, easy sentence that is certainly could be added to to explain what agile is. But I,
0: I agree with that, by the way. And I do have a bunch of those boring certifications, and and, and I really like that definition.
1: Well, maybe now that I've said that sentence, I can get a certification for it. So okay, I, <laughs> as well. will um, make Brian Rivera and Nigel laugh. So yeah. So you know, in Kelly, it wasn't just the SEAL community. I think the reason that I I. I I, I, I will tell you the reason that SEALs hire um, naval aviators to be their operational planners mm-hmm. is they have the same perspective on agility. But How so? Well, the Navy SEAL isn't going to tell you that because they're like, well, I don't know what agility is. What do you mean? <laughs> what they're going to say is like, no, you, you F-14, F-18 strike fighter aviators have the same um, time-on-target approach to mission planning. And you have a common warrior ethos. Do you want to come work for us? So <laughs> that's on the conversation.
0: Uh-huh, interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Or in the agility world, what, the, what that translates to, if you have the agility translator, is, <laughs> yeah. is oh, you, you have the same ability to rapidly turn com- com- the, com- the, the, the corporate intent uh, and available resources and to plan a complex operation to in the allowable time and to take changes along the way during the planning
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, to, and to produce a plan to brief the plan and then to execute the plan knowing that contingencies are going to pop up the entire time and we will have briefed those contingencies and we'll deal with them the best we can and you know what sometimes 70 percent is all we're going to achieve and if we need to achieve that other 30% to get to 100% we're going to go back we're going to fix it and we're going to do it again the next day and we're going to we're going to do that iteratively until we succeed that's really what the the agile you know how the agile and the seal <laughs> the special operations community would come to agree with that concept now that's mm-hmm. how naval aviation works we, and it it does it, it it is the pdca cycle
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know um plan, do, uh, what is the C? Check, and then act. Yeah. So we plan it, we take the the, the commander's intent, we plan the mission, we're all available with the available resources, we um, we do it, we come back, we literally go down to the ship's intelligence center and the carrier, we share our videos and our tape from the flight, mm-hmm. we tell them everything we experienced, check, 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 they send that back to Higher headquarters, and then we as aviators go back to our little um, briefing room on the ship. It's called the ready room, and we spend an hour debriefing the evolution so that we as a group are better prepared to do that same kind of mission better the next day. That is agile, and that is really – it's scrum. You're just not developing software. So it's, uh, it's the same thing. So that's the approach that, that I took to the special operations community, and it wasn't like – anything new. That's why they hire us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: avi strike fighter aviators is that we have that approach to doing business and they, and so there, I just simply applied that same um, PDCA agile framework to everything we were doing, whether it was planning a hostage rescue out of Somalia or trying to, uh, you know, uh, Let's see, trying to, to, to remove an Al-Qaeda threat from the desert of Yemen, or we were organizing ourselves to capture Osama bin Laden. Mm. Apply the same basic planning framework.
0: Can you think of a true life story that's, of course, declassified, that you could tell in which you, you did the PDCA loop, something changed while you were trying to execute, and then how you adapted
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think the, the the story will you'll remember this one.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and I'll be I'll be as brief as I can, and you can ask follow on questions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the it is early May of 2011, and if you recall, um, uh, the United States was able to U.S. Navy SEALs were able to kill Osama bin Laden on the evening of May first, two 2011. So while that was occurring, I was actually aboard a ship, the USS Boxer, um, in the Gulf of Aden, which is, uh, for the geographically challenged, it is in the the Arabian Peninsula um, off the coast of Yemen. So think between Yemen um, and Djibouti, that area of the world. So we're on a ship with 2,500 marines and an air wing of aircraft including a couple aviate harriers that we were able to um, use to attack targets in Yemen or other areas where there were al-Qaeda strongholds. Mm -hmm. So I was actually aboard the ship because we had just captured a Um, an Al-Qaeda operative that was moving between Yemen and Somalia to share weapons technology between Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa Al-Qaeda, which Mm -hmm. is located in Somalia. And so we have this guy aboard the ship. Most of the sailors on the ship think he's a pirate just so he can maintain some operational security. Uh, But he's actually a relatively knowledgeable and seasoned Al-Qaeda operative.
0: He's on your ship?
1: uh, Well, it was a, a Navy ship and uh and uh if you want to this story is actually uh was actually very well told by the the new york times a couple years ago so Uh there's there's nothing classified about this anymore Uh but it was the first time we held an al-qaeda operative and interrogated them aboard a ship i was out there to coordinate the interrogation the uh um, really the the exploitation of that individual exploitation meaning take advantage of all the information he wants to share with us so that we can turn it around as rapidly as possible Uh to Attriting the Al Qaeda network throughout the entire theater, and I'll tell you that um, interrogation isn't like what it is in the movies. Um, <laughs> this individual uh, only sees one person, and that one person is highly skilled in his craft.
0: Okay, and he his
1: best friend. Um, so and rapidly, he, what? sorry, he becomes his best friend. Oh, so, uh-huh. so this individual, um, his name was Akhmut Laborsami. You can Google his name, read the New York Times story. He was a kid. Kid. He was in his twenties. English trained. I think he went to the University of Manchester. So he spoke the Queen's English. Um, and uh, he quickly realized that he was not going to be let go. And he quickly turned on Al Qaeda and shared a treasure trove of information. Huh. Um, I won't go into all the details. So while we were out there, we began orienting, um, you know, a whole bunch of assets in the area to just to. to uh, Deal with all the information we were collecting, and including um, launching strikes on different Al Qaeda targets. Mm-hmm. What he was sharing us, and where the leads were taking us, et cetera, et cetera. Well, three days after the attack, the the, the mission to capture killed Bin Laden. This is May fourth. You know, I had been out there for maybe seven days. The majority of my effort had been on coordinating and organizing the interrogations, uh, you know, just the resources to support this interrogation team, which were highly trained individuals who didn't need much of my help, so <laughs> trust me. But what they did need was, like, help with, like, hey, how you know, living on, on a ship and integrating uh-huh. the Marine Corps and, like, what happens with the, when they sound the man overboard drill? So... <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Basics. So I was their handler, really, but
0: uh-huh.
1: I was also there to update my organization on what they were doing every day. But at the same time, we were we were we were ready to leverage the Marine Corps assets to strike as necessary emerging Al-Qaeda targets in the area. And on May 4th, the opportunity arose and we were not prepared for it. Huh. We, we were prepared for it, but we weren't prepared for it. So what happened, and I'll be, I'll be short here, was um, uh, the, the, uh, a preeminent leader of Al-Qaeda Peninsula, a gentleman by the name of Anwar Al-Awlaki, who was actually a American Yemeni citizen, um, was, uh, was popped up on the intelligence collection network. So he's basically known to be in a vehicle to a high degree of certainty. And I get a notice on my laptop, hey, we have confirmation that Anwar Al-Awlaki's on the move. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: mm. launch the Marine Aviate 8 Harriers ASAP. <laughs> That's pretty much what it looked like.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, so I'm on a, you know, I'm on a warship. The Marines have a standing 60 minute posture where they will tell you we can do anything you need within 60 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I and I, the Marine Harrier pilots, I know who they are on that window. Are, I, I get them really quickly. and Those are the first guys I grab. I'm like, hey, this is what I know. Check a look. They're looking at my laptop. We are watching the video of the vehicle that we are being asked to go strike. Hmm. We, are, that we just cut the, the, the planning loop by 10 levels by just having them come in the room and look at the video that they're actually where it is, lat longs. They're studying this. Hmm. They can see it's like launch ASAP. mm mm-hmm. So they're immediately plugged in, locked in, see what they're doing. And at the tactical level, operators knew exactly what they needed to do Hmm. within within three minutes. So then I notify the leadership. Hey, colonel um, and ship captain, colonel of the, the marine unit out there called an expeditionary unit. Just had, we just got, we've been, the task force has asked us to launch two aviate harriers to interdict Anwar al ASAP. What the, what the organization immediately did was it went into its 60 minute planning cycle.
0: Interesting. Okay. And what well, did that look like? It looked
1: like, here's what it looked like. It looked like a corporate meeting where <laughs> stakeholders were brought in to talk about the weather the shift position, the um, what the menu for evening meal was, how the things that might be that might be impediments, uh, and it was a I, I, I'm joking about the meal of course, but it was immediate, They 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 took probably 30 minutes to organize this meeting, and then when everybody got into the room, this very cramped room, it was a review of most everything we already knew. Hmm. Uh, here's the intel that we have, and I'm like, I was thinking, I just gave that to those guys twenty-five minutes ago and there's and and then here's the here's the weather. Those two pilots know what the weather is. Huh. Here's where the ship is. You know, the, ship, the pilots know where the ship is. Huh. And what the what are the anybody have any concerns? Well, I'm not sure. What's the rules of engagement? Like sir, it, this is Armor Alaki. He's now the number one threat to the homeland because we just came <laughs> last week.
0: And but, he's driving away while you guys waste time
1: where we have a limited window. Now, I don't want to, of course, throw the Marine Corps or the Marines that day in the bus because what they were doing was executing their agreed-to framework of Uh response. And I was reminded a couple times, our contract with you is 60 minutes to get aircraft off. And they were like, we are going to do everything we can do to minimize risk, but we're going to give you, we have to get those aircraft off at 60 minutes, right? I'm like... Those pilots were standing next to me within three minutes. So, unbeknownst to the leadership, maybe it wasn't known to them, the two Marine pilots actually had run to the flight deck and skipped the brief. They weren't even in the brief. they understood the importance at that tactical level. And they started up their jets. So I was expecting them. Now, what I now know is that they weren't going to get airborne until that brief and everybody was on the same sheet of music. But what, what was not planned for, I should have known, was that one of the AV-8 Harriers couldn't start. It had an engine malfunction. Oh. The other av is 100% ready to go. So we, as we finish this brief and we walk back into uh, the intel space, where my laptop is, where I can communicate, I have all the intel, the word comes to us that one of the air aircraft is down. We uh, can't fly. I turn to the Marine Colonel and I say, sir, can we launch the single AV-8? We're, we're running out of time. And he goes, I will not send one aviate over, you know, over into Yemen at night. He's like, I won't do it.
0: Hmm.
1: So I'm like, Colonel, I I think I said something to the effect of, Colonel, this is the number one threat to the American people. Hmm. Isn't this where we accept a bit more risk? I I may not have been that um, diplomatic, uh, uh, but he processed that and he's like, I will not, I will not accept that risk. Huh. So we immediately had a instant okay, organizational disagreement on
0: what, yeah.
1: how to handle, not the priority. Nobody was arguing that this was a priority. It was, we're, we're arguing acceptable risk. Huh. So we had never, our organizations had never encountered this kind of challenge together. So I did what I felt was appropriate. I I picked up the phone. It's like a red line to my command, which is in Virginia Beach. And I said, Colonel, would you talk to my boss, the Navy captain? And they they, they talked on the phone. I can't hear anything they're talking about. And I'm hoping that my boss kind of encourages the colonel to take this risk. And, like, because I was being yelled at on the chat, like, Malay, why are the aircraft not launching? What the hell is
0: from by your boss what the
1: hell what the hell what the hell yeah yeah a lot of curse curse words so you know i feel the pressure and i'm watching the video i know this vehicle is getting into a higher collateral damage zone
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the vehicle's driving from a town to a town and between towns there's nothing and Mm -hmm. if you strike a vehicle there's low risk of hurting anybody else Mm -hmm. but if you get into a town we're not going to do that because you don't want to injure um uh, civilians so (laughs) So they have a conversation. I hear the colonel go, yep, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, yep, but yeah, okay, got it. Hangs at the phone, walks out. Doesn't even turn to talk to me.
0: So what did you do? I, have
1: no idea what, I just think maybe they talked about baseball for a So the colonel walks out, and I have no idea what they just talked about, so I have to call back to my command. And, and figure out what the, comp, the phone call was all about. Um, and I, I don't really get a straight answer because things are busy and hectic again. But the colonel basically is going to check on the mar- the, air- the aircraft. Ultimately, the other marine aircraft gets gets fixed. They launch the two aircraft out. They the marines get up to the area where the vehicle is. The marines are have never operated with the assets up there that are tracking the vehicle, so we have other other assets that are helping to track this vehicle um, they're being talked to by a number of people. Um, the marines have never talked to these people, and we are almost while we have a common language, we had never tried using the common language with these different organizations and so interesting the organiz- my organization thought that the marines were were really too loud and they didn't wanna let them closer to the vehicle. The Marines couldn't actually see the, 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 a laser spot on the vehicle that was being put onto it for them because they were too far away and they didn't ask to get closer and lower. So we were talking around each other. Wow. We, Marines weren't asking for what they needed and our organization wasn't telling them what we needed. So no one was being proactive and as a result, the Marines never saw the vehicle that night. And in okay. a volley of hellfire at the last second, we were able to blow the bumper off this pickup truck and we missed on our Wow. And I didn't sleep for the next week after that whole event because I felt that I personally had failed and let the organization down. I felt that I, um, I didn't know enough and that I should have. Um, I felt, you know... I, as a naval aviator, am programmed to um, do my best um, at fear of letting my friends down. Uh-huh. I feel I let my friends down that night, my network down. Um, and it was all of us that felt that way at the conclusion of that mission, particularly the Marine Corps pilots who came back and they, they felt the same way. But we learned a lot that night. What all- did
0: you learn? What did you learn?
1: so what we learned came comes down to the famous phrase fail to prepare prepare to fail mm. what we didn't do we we had never trained to end-to-end to end, we'd never end-to-end trained that, that entire process of that mission in just a benign training environment we had never Tested the Marine Alert launch process to see. I was surprised how they, that they had needed to do this brief. I'm like, what are you guys doing a brief for? Why don't you just send these guys airborne? Because that's how a, an aircraft carrier would do it. Okay. I mean, the Marines have a very different doctrinal approach to to contingencies like that.
0: So, that, if I could bounce in with a question: Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And you're talking about planning an operation like that. From start to finish, mm-hmm. but I think the thing you're also talking about—correct me if I'm wrong—is joint planning between your organization and the other organization. And there's so many parallels there to corporate and agile, of because people talk about silos, and you know we do the thing, but then this other silo, say security or whoever, they slow us down or legal. Um, and what you're talking about is how do you get out of the cluster and help the different organizations, not only just align around a common mission, which is get the bad guy in this example, but actually plan that collaboration, including what are the behaviors and success signs, if I'm hearing you correctly.
1: You know what, Kelly, you're going to love this, but do- so we, we triaged, um, I should say we debriefed that entire event, right? Uh huh. We, we, collectively and this is much broader decided that in order to prevent failures from like this from happening again we need to train and prepare we need to better understand each other's capabilities limitations train together have organizational understanding so that the next time something like this the contingency pops up like this mm-hmm. or rapid reaction pops up we can we are a much better tool to respond to be more agile to respond right
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, you know we we then created a training program that would start there with that event and and then it would broaden to touch every deploying Marine Corps unit with the Special Operations Community.
0: Is that right?
1: You know what we call the training? What? Agile Quest.
0: Really? <laughs> what a coincidence.
1: <laughs> it just more of my heart because uh-huh. that was exactly what we needed to be was we needed to take these high-performing teams but we needed to make them more agile and It wasn't just a matter of like you go be more agile we need to to sit down understand each other's you know uh, capabilities limitations and then we needed to go train in an environment into which we expected into which we knew we were having problems with which was this very rapid iterative um strike sequence against al-qaeda targets right
0: but how did you simulate that because the key words you're saying that are standing out to me are Trained in that environment. You know, I've given countless workshops where we're in the workshop and everything's beautiful and fairies and Disneyland. But yeah. you know, they at the end of every workshop they're like, Can I have can we have more examples related to our industry and what we do? And totally fair. And what I've learned recently in cognitive science is people actually don't learn, maybe less than 1%, unless it's not only in their context but they can also construct both their own learning and their own behaviors in their real environments. So, yeah, how did you kind of so this,
1: this, this is a model of operational training that the Navy Marine Corps use every day. In fact, right now, as you and I are talking, somewhere in some dark spot in the world, there are carrier aviators who are doing training off a ship and they're likely located near a combat zone. Mm -hmm. So wherever we are in a combat theater, we are constantly doing training for um, all of our mission sets. And that's just the culture that we have. Now, that specific event, how we handled it, (laughs) literally, we literally, um, a couple days later, we moved the ship not uh, 50 miles closer to the, the Djibouti, which is a country we have bases in and we operate out of.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and we literally um, put the same aviate a- 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 pilots into a training range in Djibouti in their aircraft with the same people that were helping out that night that, w- that we couldn't solve that problem with, and they basically conducted a similar style um, strike onto, but with no weapons, just everything simulated, onto a random vehicle driving down the road in Djibouti. And so we did the same exact thing with the same exact people, and we did that over. We did that with all of the air crew on that ship, so that they all could see how this really should, how it really should work. So that the next time I did it, there were far fewer questions. And we called that agile quest. And then advanced- you gave
0: them the experience, right? That yeah. seems like what was different—not just the concept. Now go apply it. But you gave them the experience of it. And they also had a chance to
1: sit down and talk to these all these other people involved so everybody knew what everybody else was doing. We didn't train them to be cross-functional in that sense of Agile, but they knew what to expect from people as opposed to that night where they didn't even know who people were, who, who's this person talking to me?
0: Oh, interesting, wonder, that's quite-
1: do I don't even know who these people are. So yeah. Explain that. And then we took that framework back to the States and before a ship like that deployed, we would actually send them up. We did this in Virginia Beach. We would literally have that ship sit 20 miles off the beach and we would, we would run a vehicle around town and that was our target vehicle. We would do the same things. We would put uh, We would do some signals intelligence collection on that vehicle and we did the end-to-end processing so that the Marines and the Navy could see how the special operations community does this very precise targeting.
0: Interesting.
1: And they were exposed to the whole end-to-end process that in the special operations community at the time they called the F3EA cycle, which was find, fix, finish, exploit, evaluate. Okay. This is all like PDCA, right? Yeah. It is PDCA. It's just differently named. Yeah. It, but we introduced all the players who would see that and what 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 are the what do the steps mean? And you what Agile Quest did is it it Brought it brought uh, it. Brought uh, organizational understanding, but importantly, it brought organizational trust between organizations that typically would not operate with each other. And when I learned that, like with that Marine colonel sticking his finger in my chest, telling me that that he was not going to accept that risk, was that he not only was not going to accept that risk, he didn't trust my organization's assessment of the risk. So we didn't have an understanding of risk. And AgQuest was... Focus purely on leveling that playing field, both at the organizational leadership level, all the way down to the tactical operator level. And it still is occurring today.
0: What you know? did Agile Trust do differently to, to raise that level of trust between the two organizations? Because often in Agile conversations with companies, I hear people say, we need to trust each other more. And then I look on the other side of the room and the, the body language is no effing way. Am I? Gonna get, so, what did that operation do differently?
1: Yeah. So, how do you do that? So, um, I'll give two two ideas, and there's probably we could probably brainstorm ten more ways this worked, but mm-hmm. the two ways we built trust. One was um, opening the kimono. So, by opening okay. the kimono to your organization's capabilities, but also your limitations to another organization, and really bringing them into uh, helping them understand your mission, your capabilities to achieve the mission, but also your limiting factors, which is why you're approaching them for help. That organization is far more likely to trust you as you open your kimono and reveal mm. your weaknesses. What do we call that? Transparency.
0: I thought you were going to say vulnerability.
1: Or through transparency, uh-huh. well, right? Transparency reveals your vulnerabilities, but. Yeah. Tran- seamless this case built strength because so
0: that's like a cool idea but if i put myself in their shoes it's like whoa uh i don't know if i feel safe about that you know i don't want to look bad so how do you do
1: it you do it, kelly is you you approach them and this is the job of people like me is like in as a liaison from my organization it, it, this is a this is a special operations unit they're navy seals they're not, they don't speak Navy speak. They speak special operations speak. Uh-huh. There's someone like me who's a Naval aviator. I speak Navy speak. I also speak Marine Corps speak because I fly with, with Marine aviators. They don't send Navy SEALs to the Marine Corps to go broker this trust and understanding because they don't speak the same language.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Instead, they, I, I'm exaggerating. They could do just as good a job, but instead they hired someone like me who can speak their language and say, hey, this is what the SEALs mean. This is what the SEAL community is looking for. Yeah. And this is what they, they need help with. You know, they need help with the things that you guys have, which is you guys are really good at, like, you have wing aircraft. You have, you have a bunch of highly trained operators who are great at, at um, um, you know, recovering downed aircraft at, 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 at embassy reinforcement. Give them a list of things the Marines are great at. But that's what the, the SEALs don't have. So I could speak to both ends and I could, as a liaison who, who could get in the middle of them, I could broker the trust. Mm-hmm. And then I'll share one other thing that we did that was very effective at building organizational trust is go out of your way to help them.
0: Mm-hmm. You're,
1: you're quickly going to realize what their issues are
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what their lim- limitations are, or a contingency is going to pop up that, that they're looking for help with. And your organization has that capability. And go out of your way to get your organization to provide the help they need. And if it just happens once, you'll be blown away by how quickly they'll begin to support you too. Because that's what a team's all about. And you've gotta, you got to give some of your resources to them if you want them to give resources to you.
0: It's only fair.
1: <laughs> it's only fair. No, exactly
0: right. Reciprocity.
1: That's the process of building trust. Like you say, telling people to start trusting each other. No, that doesn't do anything. It's a- No, it
0: no. A
1: slow process of, that begins with mutual understanding,
0: mm-hmm.
1: opening the kimono, being transparent, being vulnerable, like you said, um, building strength through that transparency, and then showing acts of, uh, of trust. And in my organization's case, an act of trust was sending someone like me out to their unit.
0: You're
1: mm-hmm. not just, you know, just Tech, you know, using Slack to, to tell them what you need from them. I mean, what, how, what kind of trust building is that? Nothing. Send one of your, your best guys or girls out to that organization. Have them camp out in the organization C-suite so that, you know, until the, the, the thing is done, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's such a different approach. Um, and I'm also curious to ask, like, how did you – move from all of that, including your entire military career, to building a company around waste management and supporting businesses owned by military vets and their spouses. And I'm, my real question is like, what did you harvest from your experience in the Navy yeah. to then sow and grow in your current business initiatives?
1: So when I got out of the Navy, um, you know, just a year, a year and a half ago, I just, I was on a hike in Idaho with some friends and around a campfire one night, I decided that I, I decided I need to think about three things I want to focus this next phase of life on. And with their help, I realized that I, something I'd been thinking about for a while was getting into sustainability and then, you know, in an environmental sense. Mm -hmm. Um, sustainability uh, is a broad concept um and i thought i'll figure it out but sustainability is the is the industry number two was i wanted to
0: ask you a question around that um what what do you care about around sustainability and the reason i'm asking is because i'm really passionate around that as well my my daughter actually works for greenpeace she's a strategist on the oil team and uh and I I feel like it's one of like the number one topics for the planet today. So why do you care about sustainability?
1: Well, so during my entire Navy career, I saw I, I saw the importance of sustainability on multiple levels. Um, at at the level you just mentioned of of uh, kind of like uh, environmental climate sustainability, um, I, I see our Navy reacting now to the effects of climate change and the instability it's brought oh. every corner of the earth from huh. the arctic melting creating um thinner sheets of ice that chinese icebreakers are beginning to plow highways through for chinese shipping mm. how that's going to tilt the earth, the world's balance of trade and our navy's not prepared for this um all the way to Gosh, the, you, know, you look at the migrations out of um, the Middle East over the last two, three years into Europe, and I've read some fascinating reports of how much of that is actually um, um, drought and farming stagnation caused. <laughs> uh, you, the whole Arab Spring is purported to be a result of a single um, guy who could no longer farm who's trying to peddle his wares in the street um, which you could trace back to climate change. Now that's more anecdotal, but I think that you could come up, we both could come up with dozens and dozens of examples around the world of how uh, just climate change, I'm not talking about who's causing it, but just climate change mm-hmm. is a number number of national security concerns in the United States. And I've been watching these my entire career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never been lost on me that of a safe flow of oil, crude oil.
0: Oh wait, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear.
0: Okay, I heard, it's never been lost on me. It's never been
1: lost on me, yeah. Uh, I mean, but
0: l- wait, can you just, I'm gonna go like this, one, two, and start with it's never been lost on me, so one, two, three.
1: So it's never been lost on me, in fact it's been taught to us uh, as young naval aviators the reason that our American Navy is so involved in the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea, is to ensure the safe flow of crude oil from our Saudi and even Iraqi partners um, to the Japanese and European oil-consuming markets, mm-hmm. and that happens safely. The, our our job there is very tied to to the fossil fuel dependencies of the. Major economies, and so um, to be in the, in the in the Navy and not pay attention to um, issues of sustainability are huge. And then, you know, you know, talk to the any number of family members of the dozens and dozens of Marines or Army soldiers who were killed in convoy operations in Iraq or little alone Afghanistan that were hauling heavy or heavy fuel oil deliveries to our forward operating bases. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of our of the Department of Defense's energy initiatives are to do anything we can to remove oil and, and gas and diesel from trucks moving across dangerous areas of the world. so the, and that's what drove so many um, renewable energy projects at the Department of Defense. The one that I found fascinating. Under my very nose at the Naval Academy was a food waste to electricity project called Waste to Watts. Called what? Waste to Watts. Okay. It was just a rapid innovation program funded by the Navy um, to the Naval Academy's mechanical engineering department. And I had found these guys who were working on it, Got it, had breakfast with them, offered uh- to learn, learn with them and turn some wrenches before I knew it. Um, we were in the final stages of the project. I was applying to win a state grant from Maryland's energy administration to commercialize the technology to a beef cattle feedlot. Um, and then we, that, we're that off to the races. So what I was working on was a food waste biodigester that um, was answering the Marine Corps' need for more renewable energy sources at their forward operating bases. Interesting. Remotely operated, so that Marines weren't becoming digester operators, was was uh, air and ship deployable. So think shipping containers, and was low cost, and uh, was uh, um, and could produce electricity. And we found the Naval Academy. Well, my my then partners found the Naval Academy a perfect location for it because of the consistent supply of food waste from the dining facility from 4,500 midshipmen. So that's how I got involved with that, uh, that innovative project.
0: That's fascinating. And, and what about the military vets and spouse owned businesses? Yeah,
1: so as I got into, um, guess what? I'm building a business and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm in, <laughs> in. find the club.
0: <laughs>
1: right? Um, and here's where I am just humbled by all of the programs around the country that are offered for free to veterans and military spouses who are interested in becoming entrepreneurs, who are entrepreneurs, who are already small business owners and all of the issues and things that you, you encounter along the way. So I've plugged into a couple of these programs. One of the best I'll plug is Patriot Bootcamp, which is a, um, a two, three day, um, kind of like an entrepreneurship laboratory incubator um, mm-hmm. that teaches you uh, it taught me there are big problems in this world. Many of you who are veterans and military spouses have some amazing ideas from your experiences. There is big money to back those ideas. Let's talk about how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I walked out of that program confident that even in the world of organic waste digestion, something I have no experience in at all, you know, I could do this. I could do something that complicated. And it gave me the the, the confidence I needed to get into entrepreneurship. So... To answer your question, though, over the next nine months, I became very deeply penetrated into the veteran and military spouse entrepreneur and small business world, and their allies. All these different organizations that want to provide support, um, and I will even include, you know, uh, our friends at uh, Toyota and Toyota Connect, who are eager to help veteran uh, and military spouse business people leverage uh, the Toyota. Flow system and and scrum the toy right away. So people like that who are like, hey, bring these people in. We'll we we'll, they don't we'll, we're gonna we'll give them scholarship money. We just want them to benefit from our programs. There's dozens and dozens of these amazing organizations out there. I've not plugged into all of them, and I realized you know uh, the organic waste business itself, while making an impact, it was not becoming a sustainable business fast enough for me. Okay, I was not able to pay the bills. Okay. So. I needed to find other ways to do this. And I, I just began leveraging my network and what I was encouraged to do and inspired to do was to begin f- partnering with entities that want to provide tools to help military spouse and veteran businesses be more resilient, lean, agile, and environmentally sustainable.
0: What a great combination. And if I put myself in the shoes of the Toyotas of the world, I'm guessing I would be thinking, okay, so these veterans and their spouses have such a breadth and depth of experience in areas where typically our other employees don't, and they could bring something incredibly valuable to the organization. So it seems like a scenario to me where everybody wins. Everybody could win of creating this partnership.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, what you made me think about is... um, when you and I were were, uh, working with Toyota two weeks ago, you know, your level of expertise in agility and in Scrum is hundreds and hundreds of times more than mine. And yet we have, as you, as we talk, we understand each other. Oh yeah. I think that that is true about, you know, so many of my colleagues in this tribe of veteran entrepreneurs, Uh spouse entrepreneurs, we we all speak that language and Mm. so that's, that's something that the, the corporate America and I hope um, can leverage. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, no, I don't have a lot of experience in Company X's product or development. But what I do have is a very is a, is an agility based approach to yeah. to operations and yes and, and management and leadership.
0: And that's gold. Right there.
1: And how, exactly. So I think that that um, making those connections is something that I want to get more involved in. I just don't know how to sometimes, you know, because okay. of
0: mm-hmm.
1: the different languages that we're speaking. And so that's why going, getting involved in Scrum a Toyota Way, yeah. fascinating to me, because for the first time in my retirement, I see like, holy cow,
0: he's
1: it's easy for people like me to be intimidated away from that end of business because of all your fancy words you use. Oh. And <laughs> yeah.
0: uh-huh. Certification
1: and certification programs, and I'm Lean Six Delta. Whatever,
0: micro. yeah. <laughs>
1: that sounds really hard, you know. But then you peel away and you you learn what it actually is, and you're like, no, I I get that.
0: Totally. I mean, those fancy words are noise, uh, really. And um, I, if I stand in the shoes of the corporate world, I feel greedy mm. for not only your knowledge, but your experience. Mm. Because specifically, what you bring specifically is something that the corporate world is in dire need of, which is how to translate theory to action.
1: So, Kelly, you know what the challenge in that is? And I want your opinion on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think we we share mutual, yet different world perspectives. Mm -hmm. What the the team at Toyota has very, very graciously offered to me is, um, how do I say this right? Um, They have encouraged me to adjust My then you know what you call like experiences. Mm -hmm. They're like Mark. You need to adjust your experiences to better fit our framework, so that they even make more of an impact without without um, (laughs) as as I heard this week um, without getting involved in the murder death kill. I'm like, wow, that's so true.
0: In the murder death kill, what do you mean?
1: Oh, the murder death kill is that wasn't that wasn't their words, not mine. Um, Okay. So it it was that. and I've heard some other people be well beyond Toyota is that in corporate America, there is a, there is a hesitation to engage, um, I would say combat veterans um, into and bringing their experiences in and leveraging their experiences into the corporate world because of a, uh, they're, they're not sure what they're going to get. and, they are not sure if by opening up that door and inviting a combat veteran to be, bring your experiences to our table and help us understand and operationalize these concepts, I really think there are some in corporate America who believe that when they ask for that, that they're going to get a PTSD-afflicted combat veteran. I see. That have to handle with some kind of kid gloves.
0: I see. Uh-huh.
1: Do, you know do you see that kind of thing too? Um, I want to talk more about this because this is really important to me.
0: Um, what I do see is in corporate uh, many, mostly what I've seen in corporate is they want to benefit from the experiences of veterans. Um, but they make it kind of a oh, bump my microphone. They make it a kind of a, a big upfront thing, like, do we make this big move of, say, hiring them or not, versus let's try a small experiment. So it's that same thing of plan, talk endlessly, do, check, act instead of plan, do, check, act. Like what if we just had Mark in for like one meeting, (laughs) you know, Um, or a workshop or to your point, what if we open the kimono enough for us to still feel safe, but enough for us to see each other a little bit and start talking about what are your top strengths? what's one thing that keeps you awake at night. Um, In terms of the PTSD thing, I I haven't seen anyone in corporate, or I haven't heard anyone express that concern. I'm guessing since you mentioned it, it's out there. Um, And PTSD is a real thing, but that's a pretty big assumption as well to, one, assume every veteran has PTSD, which I'm sure a lot of them do. But also to assume that don't. it's not that's, that's
1: a challenge. And I want to just jump in. Yeah, that. go ahead. vast majority. I mean, the, the PTSD is so um, minimally, I shouldn't say, it's, it is it, it is a very small percentage affliction.
0: Oh, that's encouraging to me. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. I didn't
1: know it either until so I began to look into it too. But it's it is often... You know, because of the prevalence of it in the media and in transphobes, et cetera, et cetera, we have this, uh, this assumption that PTSD is much more common than it actually is.
0: Interesting. I guess my other response to that is PTSD is a real thing.
1: It is a real thing.
0: Absolutely. And my approach, I'm a professional coach as well as an agile coach. And so my approach to coaching is that the coachee, whether it's the company or the team or the person, that they're already naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. So if there's some form of PTSD in the coachee, like if someone in the group has PTSD, I'm actually going to trust that experience. And I'm going to ask of trust-based questions of the PTSD experience, like what is the PTSD survivor, not victim, survivor know that this organization maybe doesn't know, but they need to know. And so an example that just off the top of my head is that what a lot of companies today are starting to realize, but maybe don't yet fully realize, is that we're in this digital revolution. And companies that do not figure out how to not only survive but thrive in the di- this digital revolution, they will die. Right.
1: That,
0: that's, we know that today. We, we know it. Now, many companies don't, and I, I see them operating in the old ways and not knowing that. So that's a piece of wisdom, actually, that PTSD can bring. Like, you will be in a traumatic situation unless you change the way you work.
1: That's a great analogy, tremendous analogy. And I wonder, uh, I'm going to have to research that because I wonder if there are actually organizations that are leveraging those that have that affliction to actually Interesting. help. Interesting.
0: Corporate- That's fascinating. That's right.
1: We'll have to both look that up. I'm fascinated by the too. I've got some friends who work at Walter Reed in the uh, um, in that world. I think it's called the National Intrepid Center of Excellence who are involved in this every day.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: may have the pulse on, you know, the uh, the realities of PTSD, but also the the realities of just like managing, um, you know, combat and and really workplace-induced um, um, emotional and uh, um, trauma in our in today's service members. So I'm going to reach out and see if they huh. have an idea if that actually is occurring.
0: Very important work, and and I also believe we have a. Duty to each other as fellow human beings to create a, a group, a society, an organization that is a, a learning organization and a, and a healing organization that, that can yeah. self heal dynamically.
1: And that takes a very diverse number, a background of people, you know, to do that.
0: who um, mm-hmm.
1: have seen trauma from all angles. And
0: Absolutely.
1: Who have experienced trauma and who have failed, you know.
0: That brings not only a a unique, well, it's not unique, unfortunately, but a very valuable perspective. Because if we go through the mission or the project thinking it's safe, everything's going to go according to plan, what we know in Agile now in the military is that no plan survives contact with the enemy. And so in Agile, we love planning uh, so much. that Sometimes we plan and replan daily.
1: Yeah, and that's... (laughs) So much of what a, um, the military model of PDCA, you know, we just Mm -hmm. plan brief. um, Plan, do,
0: check, act, or or the OODA loop maybe?
1: I mean, so much of our planning,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and this is Naval aviation, but also special operations, so much Mm -hmm. of the planning addresses potential contingencies.
0: (sighs) That's so valuable.
1: Potential contingencies are things that we have seen before you can't cover all 600,000 million of them, you know?
0: No. So down
1: to like, here are the contingencies that I, the briefer, want to talk about today. Because these are the things that I think are gonna most critically impact today's mission. hmm We, what we we see, well if we do, we're great because you just talk about them. If we don't see them, it's gonna probably be something that touches it or bridges them, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so much of how we, brief or plan how much we plan and then brief is contingency based it's almost like mm-hmm. the i remember in our in naval aviation we conclude the brief with let's talk about contingencies it's mm-hmm. not talk about how you expect things to go now let's talk about what we how i expect this to go sideways yeah and go from there yeah
0: <laughs> yeah interesting so um Gosh, this is such a fascinating conversation and I could keep going, but in respect of your time, um, I think my final question for you is what's next for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, that's, right now I feel like I'm opening (laughs) one door at a time um, and kind of assessing where it can, which doors are leading to making the most impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not sure where this is all going to go. Um, but I do know that I have really enjoyed the path so far. And I look back and I wonder a year ago, like did I, was I really, I was very deeply involved in cow manure and food waste, you know, <laughs> like, hey, how's your shit business coming? Yeah. I'm like, hey, it's, I've been learning a ton, but I, I would not be here if I had not gone through that. And yeah. I do not look at that as a failure. I looked at it as a great success because mm-hmm. while well, I had to, um, Amicably part ways with the guys I was working with. It was only because I just needed to um, get to an area of impact faster, and also I need to start making money so I can pay the bills. And they're still doing their thing, and they're they're doing great stuff. But what's next for me is open is beginning to um, identify other organizations and businesses who are like minded in wanting to make a positive impact in the in the in the veteran and military spouse business world, and I'm a, I've identified a, um, a, a credit card processor for one that wants to reduce fees, and they're a great partner. And I welcome anybody out there who's uh, a military-owned business, a veteran-owned business, or a military spouse owned business to contact me, and I can, I can, I can look at how they're processing their merchant credit card uh, and do it more transparently and lower rates than anybody else out there. <laughs> well oh, I've really enjoyed this connection with Toyota and Toyota Connect through my friend Brian Rivera whose company Agile X has been building high performance team coaching alongside Toyota's um, agility and scrum coaching merging the two um, to really uh, and produce the Toyota flow system I'm really enjoying working with them to sh- bring everything that I shared with you today to what they're offering as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so that I can we and as they've mentored me so that I can take these stories but like you say stories of impact and operational how you operationalize agility and how you can
0: mm-hmm.
1: with those narratives make a, a, a very pointed impact in in somebody's business so that they're living a better life <laughs> you know and so they're more successful in what they're doing um you know, I, I think of a, there's a story. This happened back in 2010. I was, uh, you know, I was in my on this Navy SEAL team for like one month, and I was running my first training event. And I was on a Navy ship, and we were doing some training right off Virginia Beach. And we were actually interdicting like a, it was like a a, a a simulated cruise liner, simulated by a. a it was like a towed vessel, right? <laughs> so it, this thing's moving south, north. I'm on this Navy ship, and I'm on the bridge of the ship, and uh, I'd been there for a total of like three hours. So I'm the brand new guy, not only to my command, but to this ship. And, but I had immersed myself in what we needed to do. Uh-huh. Captain wasn't on the bridge. He was like eating dinner in his state room. So I'm watching the bridge crew operate, and I'm watching what they're doing, and I know that we need to come left, heading one two zero right mm-hmm. like, I know we need to come left to one two zero and I, I mean I know I can see what's unfolding uh-huh. to the officer of the watch who's responsible for the bridge team and I say hey officer of the watch um we we really need to come left to one two zero the officer of the watch looks at me looks at the, the helmsman and says come left one two zero and I'm like okay good and we needed to come left because we were overshooting the target uh-huh. all of a sudden the, the phone rings uh-huh. on the bridge. yes sir yes sir we'll do it. okay sir He's right here sir. Okay sir. Yes sir. Hang to the folks. Um, hey uh, Commander Malay, the captain of the ship needs to talk to you. He needs to be here in, in a minute. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> oh, door opens. Captain of the ship walks out. He goes, you over here on the side of the bridge so everybody could see. Uh-oh. With my back to the people behind me. And uh-huh. him looking at them, he dressed me down for for shortcutting his chain of command. Oh. And for for directing his ship where to, to turn and not executing the command structure on the ship. Oh, and wow. You wanted to have my ship turn. You need to come to me.
0: Culture like, clash.
1: I didn't know I, I, your officer to watch here is your, your represent. I'm like, he was like, he's like, get out of here. I want you off my ship. Wow. If you kick me off your ship, you're not going to have a liaison into the entire exercise. I think right. You should kick me off. And so he basically... He basically yelled at me and dressed me down to assert his authority in his command. I literally went down as I'm leaving the bridge and went down to tell my boss what just happened. I hear the captain turned at the helmsman and say, hey, let's come left to 120. (laughs) (laughs) I I went down. I talked to my boss. I'm like, hey, sir, I think I'm going to be thrown off the ship. He pulls down his glasses. He's like, what? I'm like, I told him what happened. And he's like, that's exactly why we hired you.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Keep doing, keep doing that, keep doing that. That's exactly why we have you here. And I'm like, whoa. Huh. So what I've, what I, I tell that story to kind of conclude with you is that, uh. is that that kind of anecdote is what we need to impart in so many businesses
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: to empower your people to make decisions like that. But you already have, in some cases. But somebody has lopped their legs off or intimidated them that they're not going to tell what they know needs to be done, but it doesn't get done because they have to route it through you first. How do you shortcut that? And like Skipper said, that's exactly why we hired you. We want an innovative organization like that, not the hierarchical slow to react organization that takes 10 layers of a chain of command just to turn the ship.
0: That's exactly the problem that so many corporations are trying to solve as they move in the direction of agile. Uh, Doing what you did, but also helping that old culture, like a a rigid structure of command, shift in ways where they can see what's in it for me. What's the new way even? What is it? What's in it for me? And then what's my new role. And for agile leaders to understand, it's not that they're irrelevant. They actually have a really important job. Hmm. And it seems like people like you with your experience can help them understand what their new job is and why it's so important.
1: Right. Uh, That's exactly where I think uh, I I want to go with my own business, but also with the impact that I'm able to make. And um, and join a, a great number of other amazing veterans, um, who have those experiences to share, who equally can make, if, uh, make a much greater impact than I.
0: Or together, I'm sure. I think you're yeah. not like, giving yourself enough credit.
1: Well, that's why it's great to partner with Brian Rivera, someone who I flew with in my first squadron mm. 20 years ago. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know? um, and we are the same people today that we were back then. Mm. We, I'm so proud of what he has done and how far he has come. Mm. Um, But that's why, you know, today I'm so proud to align myself with him because we together see things just as you just said. Mm. And we want to be able to make that impact.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much for this interview. There's just such a wealth of uh, experiences and knowledge that you bring. And I'm honestly so looking forward to staying in touch and finding out what you do with that and how you plan to expand that so thank you yes.
1: thanks kelly i appreciate all the time today it's always great just to, to to talk these concepts through you you help me bring more um more richness to these stories but also uh, more impact from them to